0: Uh, like uh, Richard, uh, I could be persuaded, but I'm not sure I entirely was by the Fourteenth Amendment discussion. You suggest that uh, the power of locomotion uh, is, is, is and due process clause may give rights to citizens to people outside the United States. I wasn't sure that it applied to people outside the United States. After all. Uh, you might say, well that's the word, but what about the context? The context of the preamble seems to suggest there is a constitution about people who are connected to the United States. I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, with respect to the, um, your discussion of uh, the representation reinforcement theory of Ely, I have a sort of similar reaction, I, as I remember. The theory It's about democracy within the United States. This seems to be a kind of extension of that theory. I wonder more generally about the paper uh, as you sort of thicken some of the originalist arguments whether it might be better to leave that out. I think one problem, particularly as originalism scholarship has um, sort of advanced is we do not it doesn't want to appear sort of on its face like an advocacy piece and having a variety of arguments that aren't originalist tend to give that a kind of optics, whereas uh, I think we're just trying to find the empirical facts regardless of our normative positions. And so I think it's good to separate that out. So that's just a structural suggestion.
1: So um, I consider myself um, sort of sympathetic to the sort of general thesis here, but I guess I have a sort of different version. Um, I've actually thought about writing a paper like this um, for several years I, I just figured there was just too much work involved I thought <laughs> um, uh, but I've you know I've got some some pages written but but um I guess my, my take on it is I think that the there's no general power over immigration but the federal government has lots of mixed lots of powers that go to portions of the immigration power, and I felt like in reading this, you were just trying to knock down everything, kind of you know they don 't have this, they don't have this, they don't have this um, and um, so so just for example um, and, and the reason they didn't have a, a, a general immigration power is you know they, they they weren't really worried about immigrants, they wanted more immigrants on, on the other hand. Um, the federal government presumably would have power over the borders where they had territories, right? So um, they, they would have some power there. I, I think even under um, a sort of narrower understanding of the, of the Commerce Clause that um, Congress could prohibit, let's say, uh, buying a, a, a ticket on a, on a boat coming in from a, another country um, that wouldn't allow them to stop everything. You know, you could come in uh, on your own boat. <laughs> you could you could walk over. Um, so you can just go through. There's lots of different um, ways of thinking about this. Maybe, maybe Congress can. You know, if Congress has eminent domain power, um, uh, could could uh, build a fence um, from buying land along the states and then, and then build a fence that way. So, so I, on the one hand, there's not any, any general immigration power. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of, of, of individual pockets of it. And at least my version of it would be to, to, to um, not to try to push it in, in one direction or the other. Um, I think sort of generally, the, the piece, it's, what is it, it's 35, it's whatever it is, 40, 45 pages Double spaced covers a lot of ground. I think, you know, it depends how long a paper you want to write, <laughs> but but it's really covering a lot of different issues. To, to do a kind of thoroughgoing originalism would require more effort. You might want to say, I can't, you know, treat all these issues in depth, and and this is just going to sort of, you know, be a a, a more cursory analysis um, uh, to deal with it. Uh, Finally, I guess um, on the Hamilton point, this is sort of helps and hurts on, on the Hamilton point. If memory serves, Hamilton, in the Bank opinion, says that proper, you know, speaks separately about proper. But I think he says something like it's it's sort of you know violates moral norms or something like that, which would be different than a great power understanding. So on the On the one hand, he would have a different understanding of proper, but on another hand it might not signify um, great power.
2: My question is, uh, I I really enjoyed the paper, I thought this was really interesting and I learned a lot, Uh, but to kind of play devil's advocate, uh, I want to press you on on what you said you didn't want to talk about, which is what to do about it, or maybe more precisely the consequences if if we went down this road, and it strikes me that it would just be practically Completely impossible unless I'm missing something. I mean, if it meant that Rhode Island could open its borders and charge a lot of money for it and just have a conduit there, you'd have people going to every other state within a half an hour. Uh, that it was an, the, the, the original, you know, that the, at the time of the founding, people couldn't have conceived of because of the changes in, in transportation and the number of people and everything. The world has gotten smaller. So I guess the the, uh, the question would be, is not this couldn't someone see this? A non-originalist might see this as a kind of reductio of, relig, of originalism. Think of David Strauss. In the, he begins his book by talking about one of the problems with originalism is, look at all the things that we wouldn't exist in the world if we were faithful originalists. And I could see him adding this to the list. Uh, in in the, you know, if we follow the reasoning that Mitch was suggesting, it, uh, suggesting it's sort of a a fixed point that would. Uh, uh, that would sort of falsify, falsify the theory that leads to it, unless supplemented by something like Will was suggesting, a very thick understanding of practice being uh, consistent with originalism. So that's just meant to be a kind of provocative suggestion. I'm curious if you, uh, what your response.
3: So let me work back in reverse order on these three questions. On your question, what if there were horrible practical consequences to this? This is sufficiently big issue. I'm actually writing an entire book devoted in part to this question called foot voting and political freedom. For now, I would note merely that there are horrible consequences from our current immigration regime in that millions of people are condemned to lives of horrible third-world poverty and oppression as a result of it, and millions of Native-born Americans also have their freedom restricted in various ways, and while I, I would never contend that there is zero negative side effect to open immigration, I think many of them can be handled by mechanisms other than sort of restrictionism of the kind that we've seen. Uh, so there's two sides to this question. If originalism, I would argue ultimately if originalism gets us to a regime of closer to open borders, that's actually a feature rather than a bug of originalism from a uh, practical consequences uh, point of view. But I don't think fully entering into that is something that I could uh, do in this paper because as Michael quite rightly pointed out, there are already some other issues that need to be are more narrowly, legal issue need to be dealt with in more detail, and to also deal with sort of policy questions. So what I may do, I may, you know, include a paragraph saying like, some of these policy questions I'm dealing with in some of my other work, and I actually already have note that a little bit, but I can do, say it more. Uh, regarding uh, Mike's comment or Michael's comment on uh, on Hamilton, I, I do need to look again at that particular passage in the report on the bank. Uh, though I do think that. Uh, What he said in the Federalist Papers at the time debates is probably in some ways more probative original meaning, and that doesn't seem to refer to, you know, moral principles unless you think that interfering with state-inherent laws and the like are somehow inherently uh, immoral. uh, I too may be having issues with my uh, handwriting, so I will return to Mike's other comment if I can decipher my handwriting here. Uh, this seems to be a common problem, even for people who are textuals, perhaps especially for them. Uh, on John McGuinness's comment about whether the Fourteenth Amendment and perhaps constitutional rights in general refer to uh, refer to people outside the United States, I would merely note that uh, the Fourteenth Amendment refers to persons without geographical specification, at least in that uh, respect, and that the, uh, most of the other rights in the Constitution also generally refer- read as limitations on government power, rather than as protections for particular groups of people in particular places, and uh, therefore I don't think there's a it's desirable to read in these limitations unless there's some strong evidence, originalist or otherwise, as to why we should read into it. There are some rights that are specifically reserved for citizens, like the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the like, but but uh, that only emphasizes the fact that other rights are in fact uh, not specifically reserved. Indeed, as limitations on government power rather than as uh, specification for particular people. Regarding the preamble, this is something I was going to include in the uh, paper but didn't include, but John McGuinness's comment, or John's comment reads me, I think maybe I should have included it uh, nonetheless, and uh, the preamble ref- actually refers uh, to the people in our poster and posterity, and I think posterity clearly is not meant to refer merely to the Uh, sort of the biological descendants of the people in the U.S. at the time to all people who uh, may come in uh, and therefore... Uh, I think that fits a broader 18th century enlightenment vision of the world that the preamble refers to. So maybe this doesn't matter too much to people who don't think the preamble is binding, and I don't necessarily think it's binding myself, but to those who do, I think this broader interpretation is more persuasive than the sort of uh, narrower, uh, m- more sort of exclusionary one. Uh, I. Had thought to include this, but I hadn't yet. Until this moment, I hadn't seen this brought up in uh, sort of debates among constitutional theorists. Though I do see it on immigration restrictionist websites, where they say it's okay for us to restrict immigration because the Constitution is only about uh, Americans and their posterity. So maybe I will uh, include that because it may this this argument may have more purchase uh, than I originally thought it was. Uh, Finally, on Michael's comment that I temporarily forgot about, but now can decipher my handwriting uh, on other powers and their relationship to immigration. I do mention several times in the paper that there are some powers that might enable the government to restrict some types of migrants. I don't think this adds up to a general power to restrict all or most migration. Uh, And I give some answers in some particular places to why that isn't the case. I'm not going to summarize all of it. It's probable that I need to expound some of it more. But the short answer is that, most of these powers just re- re- relate to excluding people uh, who are engaged in particular types of activities or banning the activities themselves a point that Albert Gallatin who I quote made in the debate about the Alien Friends Act others yes in principle you could say uh, they could you, they could try to build a wall or a fence or whatnot but I think if the purpose of the fence is to accomplish a power not otherwise granted to Congress then it's in fact pretextual, and it would become the duty of the court uh, to strike it down, uh, to, to paraphrase a famous line from McCulloch, uh, and granted, there could be borderline cases, both literally and figuratively, where it's not clear what the you know, whether this is pretextual or not, uh, but uh, I think if you allow all pretextual uses of powers, and not just this limitation, but almost all structural limitations on power, uh, would end up getting swallowed up. Uh, and. You know, there might be some complex questions about how exactly to cash this out. uh, If you do get to the point where we roll back some of this precedent, and in the paper I do actually discuss some intermediate steps that could be taken short of overruling the inherent power doctrine, or overruling the plenary power doctrine entirely. Uh, For example, you can overrule the inherent power doctrine, but allow exclusion of migrants that fits within the modern interpretation of some of the other powers. There's other intermediate steps that can be taken as well. I
4: think our next trio is uh, Chris Green, Evan Burnick, and uh, John McHale.
3: Uh,
5: So war and invasion, Uh, we talked about this last night a bit, but (coughs) war powers, uh, I mean Congress can do it, you know, when it's a really bad idea or violates international law, they can do it without using the word war, they can do it even though they're just uh, trying to detain people instead of kill them, and it seems like they can do it against individuals, so if you remember Indiana Jones 3, you know, execute the American conspirators. Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Uh, failed state situations. I'm sorry? Was that... It was the last Indiana Jones movie, actually. They'd never made another one. Uh, yeah, uh, they never...
6: Yeah, there's... Yeah.
5: The Crystal Skull is non-canon. Um, so... Uh, uh, you know, one of those four steps has got to be wrong for your theory, I think, but I, I, maybe it's got to be a lot of people or something. Invasion. Uh, so you've got three references. You've got uh, you know, power to repel invasions, you've got a duty to, to stop invasions in Article 4, and you've got invasions mentioned in the habeas corpus clause. Uh, do invasions have to be violent? Can you sneak them in? Uh, Congress seems like they can exercise this power when they're paranoid. Uh, yeah you know, why isn't this an invasion? Or, you know, why isn't the power to repel invasions the power to keep people out?
6: So, bracketing for the moment the question of whether the term persons in the Migration and Importation Clause would have been understood by members of the ratifying public to denote slaves and only slaves, even if The migration and importation of such persons is a euphemistic reference. It contemplates that there's power to prohibit people from entering the country, which raises the question of where that power comes from and what the scope of it is. Now, I take it that you think the power comes from the Commerce Clause. I'm not sure what you think the scope of it is. I take it you don't think that the Commerce Clause authorizes Congress to prohibit people who aren't slaves from entering the country for commercial purposes, but unless Congress has some slavery-specific prohibitory power I think you need to say more about why Congress has the power to prohibit migration or importation of slaves for commercial purposes, but doesn't have a broader power that's potentially applicable in the context with which you're concerned. Um, The second point is you say, and I agree, that it's dangerous to assume that the president had inherent power um, similar to contemporary executives, but the fact that we can't assume that he possessed all such powers doesn't mean he didn't possess this particular one i don't know where you stand on whether the first sentence um, the first sentence of article two, but if it vests power instead of merely identifying the holder of subsequently enumerated powers, it seems very possible to me that it of this kind of power, one that, that was historically understood as an executive power, and your argument that well, this is a particularly you know broad power and therefore would have been enumerated i don't think is particularly, uh, holds up particularly well, given that there are, I, I can think of a number of inherently executive powers that aren't enumerated in Article Two, such as the power to repel attacks, um, that I think are, con- that one can convincingly argue were vested nonetheless
7: in the executive.
3: Terry, one more person,
7: I'm right here. Yeah, Ilya, as I uh, mentioned to you over lunch, I really admire the way you've stepped out in front on the uh, Trump executive order. Um, and argued for its unconstitutionality. And I think I probably, at the end of the day, agree with you, but I get there from a very different route. And I want to flesh that out in relation to your paper. So focusing on the Necessary and Proper Clause, point one is I think you have to tread lightly when you rely on what Madison and Hamilton say in The Federalist. In Federalist 33 and in 44, neither Hamilton nor Madison quote the Necessary and Proper Clause accurately. Both of them are playing fast and loose with the text. They are both, in my estimation, quite consciously suppressing the sweeping clause function of the necessary and proper clause. In your analysis, I don't think you're doing justice to the way that the court understood the necessary and proper clause in the Chinese exclusion case. And the best illustration of that is that in sections E and F of your paper, you are analyzing whether there's an inherent congressional power on the one hand or an inherent executive power on the other. The way the court actually does this in Chinese exclusion is that they're operating at the higher level of an inherent government power. And the text of the Necessary and Proper Clause itself forces us to recognize a distinction between powers vested by the Constitution and the government of the United States on the one hand, and powers vested in Congress or other departments or officers on the other. That's really forced upon us by the text, I believe. And the way these late 19th century cases all worked, legal tender case, uh, Chinese exclusion, insular cases, and so forth, is that the court began to recognize that there were additional unenumerated powers vested by the Constitution in the government itself, and what they typically said was, these are incidents of national sovereignty. So the way the analysis works is, first, you recognize that the power is vested in the government. Then you go to the question, can Congress legislate pursuant to that power, or is, in fact, maybe the president the agent that is is secondarily vested with the power to, uh, to, to carry it into effect? So you're conflating in your section E inherent congressional power with inherent government power. And it seems to me the right analysis is that the power, most plausibly, is a power vested in the United States. And the United States does, in fact, have, on the original understanding, all of the powers that any other nation has with respect to a limited set of national sovereign uh, issues, like immigration. I do agree with Charles. It's almost a reductio uh, of uh, this way of looking at the Constitution, that you don't end up with the recognition of a power to control the borders, the migration across borders, that the immigration power would would encompass The last point, if I can anticipate something that Mike Ramsey might say, uh, because I've found very interesting the posts that the two of you have put up on this, is that I don't think that the 10th Amendment poses any particular problem for this view. And the reason, it's, it's a couple different ways to put this. Point one is, there's no contradiction in thinking that among the delegated powers are what are understood to be inherent powers. That, that's not a contradiction. It could have been the case that the founders, when they were talking and writing about powers delegated to the United States by the Constitution or vested in the United States, that they would have included all the powers that, according to Vatel or according to any law of nations theorists, were those powers inherent in any nation. But you don't even have to bring in the term inherent power. You could just simply stick with something more modest like implied power. And you could say that among the implied powers delegated to the United States or vested in the United States is a power over immigration. If you go that route, you're going to get to an express power in Congress to legislate pursuant to that implied power. The very last point I'll make is that I think at the end of the day, you can get where you want. Because of course, those exercises of power on your view, and I think it's a plausible view, have to be both necessary and proper. So you don't end up with an untrammeled, unreviewable, plenary government power. On the contrary, you have a power that's located in the Constitution, but it's limited. So that the Chinese exclusion case and its progeny might be wrong in recognizing a fully plenary, unlimited power. But it's not wrong in recognizing a power over immigration that's vested in the government uh, that gets us going in the first place.
3: So I, I guess I'll again go in reverse order. I'm not sure I entirely understand uh, John McHale's last point in that if there is this general power that's vested somewhere nebulously in the government, then it seems then if it's a separate power of its own, then the it doesn't even need the necessary and proper clause necessarily because it's a separate power in its own. It's by definition both necessary and proper uh, because it's you know it already exists independent of the necessary and proper clause. Uh, but otherwise, I would say that while I admit it, it may be an oversimplification or mistake to put the, this inherent power argument within the congressional power <coughs> section of my paper because it could be vested in the government generally, I still think my general argument applies just as well, which is that uh, we can't assume that anything that is inherent or that might be thought to be inherent must be vested somewhere because there's a lot of stuff that uh, is, in fact, enumerated. that. Uh, would be more fundamental and, and, and more important and more essential than this power would be. Uh, and therefore, I think it would also be very striking if this power was thought to exist and given its importance, it was never actually specified who would have it in any way whatsoever. That would be, that strikes me as a very huge uh, omission as the current president might say uh, and strikes me as somewhat uh, improbable. And uh, obviously, I would, I uh, refer back to the statements by Madison and Jefferson and others during the founding era where suggesting this power didn't exist and that was the reason uh, why it wasn't specified. That seems to me a much more parsimonious and likely explanation of why it wasn't uh, specified than uh, that it had to nebulously exist somewhere but but they didn't bother to assign it to any particular uh, branch. Uh, On the question raised by Evan Burnick about, well. May, the That the, 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 the fact that not all powers that were considered inherent to the uh, or prerogatives of the English executive, the English monarch, uh, that just because not all of them were necessarily given to the uh, president doesn't mean that this one wasn't. Here, I think I have to refer back to the sort of history and original meaning of the literature that I was responding to, including Michael Ramsey's work, where the main argument is, in fact, an argument that. This must have been given to the uh, to the President because the monarch this is one of the powers the monarch generally had. If there is more specific evidence specific to this power uh, that indicates that this power was given, was understood to have be had by the president then i 'm happy to address that evidence. Uh, but if the only evidence is simply well this was on the list of the or was thought to be on the list of the powers of the English king, then I think the responses that I give in the uh, paper are sufficient to deal with that sort of argument from general inference. If there is some argument that's specific to this power, then I would either have to concede the argument or uh, I would have to uh, provide a specific rebuttal to add evidence. But before I can do that, I want to see the evidence on this. Finally, on the Indiana Jones slash invasion point, this was in fact the third out of the four Indiana Jones movies. There's all, it kind of occurs in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is later followed by the uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Uh, and. There, I would say, I think I'm on fairly safe ground in saying that an invasion does have to be violent. I think both the under the expert meaning of invasion and under the popular non-expert meaning of invasion, that's generally what an invasion is. Yes, I know people metaphorically talk about invasion sometimes, uh, mean even to include peaceful migrants, but uh, I, I don't think the Constitution means invasion in a metaphorical sense. I also don't think, and you know, as Chris and I had actually discussed this point last night, uh, I don't think that Congress can, in effect, declare war, but in such a way that the war really is only just about migration restrictions. Uh, I think Declaring war or authorizing war means a violent military conflict against a state, or at least against some collective act entity that is meaningfully similar to a state, like ISIS, for example. Uh, and declaring war on an individual person, or even on the Jones boys, two individual people, that strikes me as unlikely to be in accordance with either the original meaning of what it means to declare war or any sort of even, you know, plausible evolutionary understanding of the relevant international law. So it would seem to me that an attempt by Congress to circumvent the limits on its power in this area by, in effect, declaring war but then defining war narrowly to meet immigration restriction, uh, I think that should fail uh, even more clearly than some of these sort of pretextual uses of power that we talked about earlier with sort of, you know, uh, 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 building a fence or or the like and I would use this opportunity to make a similar point about uh, inspecting or uh, keeping out goods and so forth that uh, you can certainly keep out goods that failed to pay a tariff and penalize individuals who uh, who disobeyed the relevant tariff laws or whatever but if it's pretty clear that the purpose of this is just to keep out migrants under the pretext of enforcing tariff laws then uh, that would be uh, you know, that would be outside the scope of Congress's power. As in every area, there's going to be difficult borderline cases, and different people can differ based on what you do with borderline cases. But if we're at a point where, we're, where the main thing under debate is how to deal with the difficult borderline cases, then I will have won like 80 or 90 percent of the ground that I'm contending for, and I'll be well content if we move the debate to, if the debate ends up in that kind of area.
4: All right, the, the next trio is Guy Barnett, uh, Michael Ramsey, and me.
8: Okay, so I have th- uh, three quick questions here. Um, one of the first ones is actually a comment. Um, you mentioned use the, use the phrase third world several times, and I know that's, that's uh, apparently offensive now, so that's something uh, not to be used anymore. I was told this is a political science conference about 10 years ago, so um, <laughs> it's developing, I guess, uh, and not third world. Um, second, um, would you can see then, uh, looking at the, the broader powers, um, the broader powers of the executive, and we're talking about these inherent ones, and you said that the executive does, or the government, I guess, generally does, have uh, the executive, especially to exclude enemies under his powers, uh, legislature under, of terrorists, um, and so w- would it be something where uh, they could perhaps take larger swaths of people, uh, and I'm thinking of Trump, obviously, here, um, with a certain migrant population, and say we don't know who the terrorists are, but they're in that group, therefore they can't come in. Is that, or is that not surgical enough? I guess that's my question: is could you count all of that as enemies until they find out otherwise, or something? I guess that's that's my qu- second question. Third one um, is, and this is just a I don't know, is there another country on the earth that cannot restrict uh, immigration? I I don't know if I've ever heard of one, so I, I just wondered because that would be. America would be quite an aberration if that was true, if, we, if we're the only one. Yes, exceptional. I'm, so, I'm sorry. What was I thinking? That's right. So, sorry. All right. That's it.
9: Oh, well, thanks. Uh, yeah, well, so I, I agree uh, with uh, some parts of this paper and, and don't agree with others. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to pick on the part that I don't agree with. Uh, but I do, uh, I do like the uh, rejection of, of plenary power, and, and John McHale is right to anticipate that uh, that that would be my view. But I won't get into that right here. Uh, so I, I just wanted to um, to ask a little bit on on the uh, executive power point, which is um, in, increasingly my view that uh, the the power, at least to exclude aliens, was um, was clearly an executive power under the the British Constitution. Um, and it was, um, it connects up very closely with the idea of the president or the, the, the executive uh, having foreign affairs power, because the, the relationship between the aliens uh, who might want to come in uh, and their place of origin was very much understood as a, uh, as a foreign affairs matter uh, in the 18th century, at least, that there were, you would talk about um, whether you would, for example, admit merchants from a particular country. Um, as as a, uh, a reciprocity measure, for example, or, or as a goodwill measure, uh, so it was part of the president's um, foreign affairs power. Uh, I sorry, part of the the, the the king's executive foreign affairs power. So the question is, did that carry over uh, to the um, uh, to the uh, United States under under the Constitution? And you could reject that by rejecting straight up the idea of the vesting power of foreign affairs, but then you just get into a separate question that we wouldn't want to get into. <clears throat> so, assuming that the proposition that the, the vesting power vests foreign affairs power uh, is a general proposition, then the question is, is there reason to think that it doesn't vest this particular uh, foreign affairs power? And, and it, there might be, but I just that seems like that's the way that um, the, the question would be teed up. Uh, and then the, the question specifically that I wanted to take up was uh, on the Alien Friends Act. Um, And it seemed to me that um, in thinking about that act and and in your discussion of it, you you might want to distinguish between two different powers. Uh, And and one is the power to exclude aliens uh, who are not currently in the country. Uh, And the other is um, to expel aliens uh, who are currently in the country. Um, And my impression, but this is just a question, I guess, at this point, is, is whether... Um, it was, it's not the case that the debate over the Alien Friends Act was principally on the latter point. That, that is, uh, there, there were uh, aliens in the country that the Federalists wanted out because they thought they were disruptive, uh, and the uh, Republicans wanted to keep them in uh, because they thought they were uh, supporters of the Republicans, uh, and not to be too cynical about things. Uh, and so if, that's the, if, that's, if that was the central question of the Alien Friends Act, then it does seem to me like that's sort of a different question, because there's some good reason to think uh, that the um, control of aliens within the country uh, might well have been viewed uh, as a legislative power, rather than uh, rather than an executive power, or at least a power um, protected by the due process clause. Uh, I don't know what the English system, uh, what the Engli- English law was of control of aliens that were currently in the country, uh, but that would be something to look into. But, um, so, uh, uh, and if that's true, then that would not, sorry, if, that's, if it's true that that's what the debate over the Alien Friends Act was principally about, uh, then that would not carry uh, that much weight on the question um, of the President's power to exclude uh, aliens who are not in the country. So, uh, I think that more development of that debate would be, uh, would be useful on that, this point. Um,
4: so my question pertains first to the to, to this sort of uh, syllogism you you set out a couple of times that if the power to regulate fo- foreign commerce allows congress to forbid the migration of workers it would also have the power to restrict interstate migration so this equivalence y- you draw a lot on this on the fact that commerce applies to both interstate and 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 uh, foreign migration and uh, I think that you know it could be the case that foreign that that commerce that uh, applies to interstate migration, but the but Congress doesn't have the power to limit interstate migration, not because it's not commerce, but because of other reasons that are that are situated elsewhere in the Constitution, like due process reasons or. Uh, uh, or whatnot. I mean, I, I you know, I know that there's some doctrine in some circuits that that recognizes a, a right of freedom of movement as a constitutional due process matter within the state. You know, probably there's similar lines of doctrine that apply to interstate travel. So I don't think you need to. I, I don't think it follows that uh, that that commerce can't include migration uh, just because uh, uh, there that that might prevent. Uh, but that might also apply to interstate movement.
3: Um, is, is that three or? That's three. Sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm starting to, in addition to having trouble reading my handwriting, I'm also having trouble counting. So let me again work backwards. Uh, I think it is probably the case that I should at least briefly discuss other doctrines that could potentially limit uh, Congress's power to constrain interstate migration. Here I would note that obviously the due process constraint only is, it, it restricts, this it restricts it at all after the enactment of the Bill of Rights, and it's noteworthy that uh, the fear that Congress might restrict interstate movement was not raised, as my knowledge, in the uh, attack by the anti-federalists on the Commerce Clause and in other things, even though obviously they raised every conceivable objection that they could think of in regards to there being excessive federal power. Uh, I'm also not convinced, though this needs more research. But I'm not convinced that the uh, antebellum understanding of due process included uh, restriction, included forbidding restriction interstate movement. But this you know, w- should include additional research, uh, you know, before I could uh, make a def- any kind of definitive statement uh, on that. Uh, On the question of the foreign affairs power, first I want to thank uh, uh, Michael for clarifying that part of his argument for me better, and I do need to answer it in that form. But I think uh, the answer would be similar to the one that I gave in that, uh, just as we cannot presume that anything that was considered an inherent power uh, under the, uh, the British monarch therefore was in the hands of the president, we also can't assume that anything that was part of his foreign affairs power specifically was given to the president and this is so for two reasons, one general and one specific to immigration the general one is that there are other things that clearly are part of foreign affairs power that are uh, included specifically enumerated that wouldn't need to be enumerated in Article Two. If there was a general foreign affairs power, such as receiving ambassadors, for example, is a you know an obvious case. Possibly uh, the Commander in Chief power might be thought of this way as well. though That may include domestic command of the armed forces. Also, then the general point is that uh, that many of the founding fathers, as my discussion of Declaration of Independence indicates, the actually denied that the king had this power over. Uh, entry uh, and the like, uh, yeah, they complain about him uh, restricting it in Declaration of Independence. They may have been wrong in their interpretation of the British unwritten constitution, if you will, but obviously their views are the ones that were more likely to be incorporated in or as a background understanding of the constitution than you know what the British were actually doing. Uh, on this question of the Alien Friends Act and and the, the distinction between the power to exclude and the power to expel. Uh, I think this is a distinction I can discuss, but I think it ultimately turns out not to be the one that was at issue in the debate, and I say this for a couple reasons. One is Madison and the others repeatedly argued that the federal government generally did not have this power, not merely that it was the president who didn't have it. And secondly, much of the discussion in Congress over this and elsewhere uh, clearly seems to be talking about. Uh, expulsion and exclusion uh, together. For instance, I quoted Gallatin's uh, discussion of the commerce power and excluding merchants who were bringing in uh, goods that um, uh, the violated uh, tariff regulations and the like. Uh, so I, I think Uh, therefore that these were viewed as sort of running together and that the power to expel uh, also was a power to deny entry at the border and I think certainly uh, the if if, if any alien that the president could expel under that act he could probably deny entry to uh, at the border as well do I admit that given the technology of the time there wasn't that much in the way of sort of border uh, posts or whatnot that were run by the federal government Uh, on the questions uh, raised by uh, Guy Burnett uh, I'm, I'm gonna pass on a thing about the offensiveness of the term third world or lack thereof to, to my mind what is offensive is not the term but the conditions that people are forced to live under in those areas but you know people can agree to disagree perhaps on uh, the terminology on whether there are other countries that have open borders the answer is yes Uh, Argentina has actually adopted a generalized policy of open borders much like the one that I advocate and you can say well the fact that it doesn't seem to have harmed Argentina doesn't mean it won't harm us it is not my claim that this definitive that I can definitively prove that by the example of Argentina that's why I'm writing an entire book about this subject Uh, but more generally we can look back at our own history that we had, at least with respect to the federal government, pretty much open borders until the uh, early 1880s. And even after that, we had open borders to all but Asian immigrants. And the same thing was true of, mo- of many European countries up until the early 20th century. Uh, and uh, so, uh, I'm not, again, I'm not claiming that this refutes all possible arguments how conditions are different today so it'd be terrible today even if it wasn't terrible back then uh, but I t- but it's not a completely novel idea either in terms of c- the contemporary world or in uh, or uh, historically uh, I cannot remember or maybe I've written down wrong what your third question was uh,
8: just about broader powers, if, if the with the president's ability to protect, could that include?
3: Oh yeah. yeah. So, so could could he does if if he has the power to exclude hostile troops or terrorists or attack? him, could he just designate this vast category of people? Uh, my answer would be no. That for the, some of the same reasons that I've already given with respect to a sort of pretextual uses of other powers. Again, there's a difficult borderline issue in some cases, but it's not that difficult where you faced with a situation where uh, the risk that an American to look at the Trump order situation, the risk that an American will be killed by an immigrant terrorist of any kind, not just one from those seven countries, but from all over the world, is several times <coughs> lower than the risk that an American will be killed by lightning in a given year. Uh, so uh, uh, you're essentially excluding this vast number of people to get at what is an extremely tiny number of terrorists. Uh, so it's a little bit like saying, Uh, It's not much different from saying we need to exclude everybody who might come in from this nation because otherwise at least a few of them will violate some tariff regulations and we don't know ahead of time which ones might violate the tariff regulations. Uh, I do grant here, as in some other cases, there can be difficult borderline situations, both literally and figuratively. Once again, if we're at the point where we're arguing about where the exact border is, uh, then I've won 80 or 90 percent of the ground that I'd like to win and I'd be very happy. Uh, in that situation. Uh, So, I think we can move on to the next triumvirate or troika, I guess as a Russian, I like the term troika better, though, it also has some negative historical associations.
4: (laughs) (laughs) These three have to be very quick. Uh, David Upham, uh, Larry Solom, and Stephen Sachs.
10: Um, Yeah, I I would just say that, for a scholarly article, take a smaller portion and just go into all the materials. If it's more of a sort of a popular sketch or a semi-popular sketch of an argument for constitution and open borders, that's a diff- maybe that's what you're trying to do. But some of this stuff, there's a lot of materials that I, that I think you should cover just in dealing with just commerce or naturalization or other things. Um, there's one example, Can't the, the Kentucky Resolution um, talks about the Immigration Importation Clause, Migration Clause that says they, it's unconstitutional at least, uh, to, to, uh, to exclude aliens, that's another one of their arguments. Is the, because in 1798, it's not 1808 yet. Um, just more generally, just as an historical matter, questioning Congress's immigration power has in fact had the effect not of restricting immigration policies, but providing a pretext of, or a justification for a general sort of extra constitutional powers, like Curtis Wright export and lots of others. Uh, maybe that's not gonna be the, the effect of, of, your, of your scholarship, but uh, that's been the effect at least, at least 100 years ago that was the effect of that, those kind of challenges.
11: Uh, so just this is just uh, focused on uh, your discussion of uh, state restrictions and the power and the, the, the right of locomotion right so you you quote um, uh, Williams v. Fears, but that case was a privileges or immunities case that's the uh, case you quote on 31 And then on uh, the next page, 32, you deal with this argument and uh, your, your answer is the civil rights cases of 1883. But the passage that you read does not attach this to the due process clause. So I just think you need to do some more work here on getting the right of locomotion as it applies to the states in the 14th Amendment, attached to something other than the privileges or immunities clause. The argument that you make, I don't think works as a matter of the uh, cases that you cite.
7: I'd go both of those points to say that I think that, that the paper would be a lot better with a lot more discussion of states in particular, evidence predating Slaughterhouse and sort of general discussion of the theory of the 14th Amendment um, that, that, that you know, would go from a similar original uh, perspective. But I just want to say one thing very quickly, picking up Michael Rappaport's question about, you know, about eminent domain and everything else. If the federal government had territory lining the United States or if it declared its ownership of the territorial sea or something like that, and then just made it a criminal offense under the territories clause for someone not on the approved list to pass through it with the intent to enter the United States. Um, could they essentially recreate a federal power of immigration just by
3: obtaining territory that surrounded the states? Uh, so I guess I'll again take these questions in a reverse order. I think this last question is sort of another albeit more creative version of the, the question I'm asked several times, is sort of could they in effect try to pretextually use other kinds of powers to accomplish this? And I think the answer would give the same kind of answer. With that one, it's maybe a little harder in that in a uh, a federally owned territory, the federal government would have the same kind of rights or powers presumably as a state would have within a state. So there, uh, I guess I would say maybe, if the federal government could like build territory surrounding the U.S. Uh, and make it a federal territory that maybe perhaps they could do it. Uh, this is an interesting legal question. I don't consider it that important for the real world because obviously we are surrounded. Uh, we have borders where there are states there, not the federal government, and we have, you know, the seas and so forth. Uh, uh, and the federal government claiming, uh, you know, s- uh, claiming the kind of sovereignty over the seas that a state has over, state would would run into a lot of problems under both constitutional law and international law. Uh, so, on the issues of the privilege and immunities clause and the due process clause. I'm not going to at this point rely on my memory of the exact past in the cases. All, all I would say is that it's well taken, the admonition, I should look more carefully at them and also look more carefully at some of the other evidence from 1868. One possibility that I'm considering is simply just carving out the state power part of this and just focusing the, this paper on federal and saving the state for later. There are pluses and minuses to both of those approaches that, you know, that uh, I've discussed with, with Steve and others uh, before, and I'm, I'm not yet sure which is the uh better path to uh go on on that and then uh i'm not sure what what was the very first question in this uh chain uh, uh oh yeah so the the issue of uh so it's true that the kentucky resolution uh, has that passage that you mentioned uh, however the author of the kentucky resolution thomas jefferson also said in his initial draft that there was no general power here. So I think this is an argument in the alternative that even if there is a general power, you can't exercise it yet, be, at least with, with respect to those states who want to let people in. Uh, but I think it's desirable to specify that point about the Kentucky Resolution, I'm happy to do so. On your more general point of if you deny Congress's uh, sort of specific power that was just with people to adopt the inherent power theory, obviously that tr- did happen historically. Uh, in the paper i criticized the inherent power theory as well but i don't imagine that my criticism of it no matter how good the criticism might be will by itself cause the sort of the politics and political economy of the situation to change that's why in the very last part of the paper i talk about how uh legal and if you want to achieve real world change in this area or in any area of constitutional controversy you need a multi-pronged strategy of a legal analysis and a political movement, and in some of my other work on the Kilo case and public use, for example, I've talked about how this can be done. There's also a large literature on it generally, uh, but this paper does not purport to lay out sort of a general political and legal strategy for how we get from here to where I hope we can eventually get. All I would say is that I'm very conscious of the fact that legal argumentation by itself even the best legal argumentation, I don't claim that I'm the best legal arguer ever, but even the best legal argumentation won't get you there by itself. Rather, it has to be part of a multi-pronged strategy of the kind that we see with the civil rights movement, the gun rights movement, and others. Uh, and I <coughs> hope over time that can be done in this immigration area, but this is just uh, you know, one part of it.